Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we have another lesson on Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is a book by C.S. Lewis. It's actually a combination of a few different speeches that he gave during World War II on the radio. And tonight we are with book three. This is called Christian Behavior, with a U in there. He was British. Uh, and David Flatt, uh, our doctor uh, cardiologist uh, in training, uh, will be teaching us on this topic tonight. We only have two lessons remaining on mere Christianity, and we will wrap it up next week with Eric Gentry, a preacher at Highland Church of Christ. He'll be teaching us on the final portion of mere Christianity, which is called Beyond Personality. But tonight, it's going to be David as he teaches us again on Christian behavior. All right. <laughs> Good evening. Sorry for the little delay there. <clears throat> okay, so we're going through Mere Christianity, and tonight we're on book three. So um, it's a, this book is Christian Behavior, and um, we'll just kind of jump right in. So introduction, I just want to say a, a few brief words about C.S. Lewis. Obviously, he left an enormous legacy on the church and Christian history. Um not only C.S. Lewis, but even a lot of the other like Christian writers that I really respect and <clears throat> have helped kind of form my view of, of Scripture and a uh, high view of, of Jesus and um, kind of picturing and viewing a big God, they all quote C.S. Lewis. I mean, he's influenced and, and just formed literally millions of Christians and uh, just lived a, a remarkable life. We've got um, enormous respect for him. So his masterpiece is Mere Christianity. He wrote several other books that you ought to read. Screwtape Letters, I think, is a, you know, I wouldn't say it's essential Christian, <laughs> essential Christian reading, um, but it's it's a book Christians ought to read. Um, and then I think the Chronicles of Narnia, everybody ought to read that too. But I think of his works, and I'm I'm not a Lewis expert, but I'm pretty well well read in Lewis. I think Mere Christianity really stands head and shoulders above the rest. There's something special about it. Kyle talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's really, Mere Christianity is actually four books combined into one, and really it's four speeches. Each of these speeches was delivered on the radio during World War II to encourage uh, the British nation during the war, and each of these speeches was turned into a book, which were then combined into, uh, under one title, Mere Christianity. If you think about it, even the setup of the four books, I think, is really beautiful. The first book... Right and wrong is a clue to the meaning of the universe. It's kind of an introduction into Christian thinking. Maybe somebody who's not a Christian, who is even skeptical of religion, could would read book one. And I think even if you weren't completely persuaded, I think it's impossible to read that, that book and not uh, catch some hints of something beyond just the physical world. And so I think it's a great introduction to then book two, what it is Christians actually believe. It's been said it doesn't really matter what you believe if it doesn't affect how you behave. So book three is behavior. And then book four is really kind of transcending <clears throat> beliefs and behaviors and into a life beyond, um, beyond this one, kind of beyond the routine. And so that's what we'll talk about next week. Um, Eric Gentry, who uh, preaches at our church, is going to come and, and share that lesson with us. So I think um, as we jump into book three, it's important to kind of remember what Lewis's task here is to begin with. So remember, Lewis um, imagined this great hall. And so the great hall was the idea of <clears throat> you entered in this, this large hall, and within the hall, um, there's rooms that enter into different, there's doors entering into different rooms. And so in the analogy, the hall is mere Christianity. That's the place where Christians who believe the truths that Christians have believed across time and history, the things that we've all agreed on, we would meet together in the hall. And then, I do think, an important part of the Christian life is to, to figure out which room is going to be the best place for you to fit based on your convictions of how you read Scripture and your commitments and the community that God's called you to. But really, the idea of the hall, I think, is so special because it's it's something that you can really create unity, but not unity kind of in the soft kind of cultural unity you might see on the news or whatever, like let's all just come together. 
I mean, coming together around what? I think meaningful unity has got to unify around meaningful things. So mere Christianity, we're seeking genuine Christian unity around things that are genuinely Christian. So what Lewis says here is, it's more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into the hall, I've done what I attempted. And so I was kind of, as I was thinking about tonight, I was kind of reflecting on like, what is the task of this Bible study, MDDDS? And I, I think we really want to be a place for like mere Christianity. We want to be a place that really takes seriously the truth claims of Scripture, what it is that Christians believe, what how it is that Christians behave, and then what that means for eternity. And I hope that we're a place where Christians really feel comfortable kind of coming and gathering in the hall that's MDDDS, and I hope that propels us into like bigger and better things. So that being said, uh, tonight we're on book three, Christian Behavior. <coughs> And so this is the outline of Christian behavior. It's actually 12, there's 12 chapters in the book. It's by far the longest of the three books. And it covers just really epic uh, topics. You know, you think about, we're going to have like, chapter 7 is forgiveness. Or chapter 5 is sexual morality. I mean, you could have like a whole month on a Christian view of these topics. So admittedly, um, I'm not going to be able to cover every one of these chapters and everything that Lewis says in these chapters. What I would say is you ought to, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it because it's really beautiful. And part of Lewis's, um, kind of the beauty of what he does is he encapsulates all these great ideas in like, I don't know, 50 pages. And so part of saying something greatly is saying it succinctly, but still encapsulating the whole idea of what you're trying to say. So what I'm going to do a lot tonight is I'm just going to quote Lewis. So like, it's like, I'm not sure there's a better way to express this idea than how he said it. So let's just quote what, what, what the text is here and maybe make a few comments and maybe have some discussion around it. And then I'm going to hope to kind of respect our time and get through you know, a lot of material and uh, not be here until midnight. So we've got 12 chapters to cover, and um, we'll just cover them one at a time. So chapter 1 is the three parts of morality. So again, this is chapter 3 of Lewis's book, and Mere Christianity, and this chapter is Christian behavior, or this book is Christian behavior, and there's 12 chapters. The first is three parts of Christian morality. So three parts of morality. There are three parts of morality. There's harmony between individuals harmonizing the things inside each individual and the general purpose of human life as a whole. So here is this, uh, this beautiful analogy he gives. We've talked about this every week, I think, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but I think Lewis is really the master of analogies. He's always coming up with these beautiful concepts to make us understand things um, kind of beyond what our, our words could do. So he imagines a fleet of ships, and he says if you think about this fleet of ships, it really identifies the three aspects of morality. So the first aspect of morality, remember, <clears throat> is that there's harmony between individuals. So Lewis describes, if you can imagine, if these ships were not working together, did not harmonize within themselves, they would crash into each other. This idea is in mature, responsible, moral living, if you are not seeking harmony within the collective, within a group, it's not going to work. Morality can't just concern an individual. It has to concern your fellow traveler, so to speak. And so that's the idea of harmonizing between the ships. The second idea is you have to have... um, you have to harmonize the things within each individual. So you can imagine if the rudder on one of the ships didn't work, well, it, again, would crash into the other ships, right? So if you don't have harmony between your fellow travelers and harmony within yourself, then you're not going to be able to travel together in you know sophisticated, appropriate, moral way. And the third idea was that you had to have a general purpose of human life as a whole. So these ships... Not only do they have to harmonize and work together, we got to travel in the same direction. Not only do they have to work within themselves, you can't have a, a broken rudder or broken mechanical aspects of the ships. But you have to be on the same plan, right? So if these ships were trying to go, he used the analogy, if they're trying to go from London to New York and they end up in New Guinea or they end up in Puerto Rico or you know any other place in the world, well, that, that's not success. So the idea there is there's got to be a moral framework beyond the ships themselves guiding them where to go. So we later, you know, we talk about that's the importance of divine revelation and, um, <clears throat> and ethics based in the person of God. But then you also got to be um, 
kind of unified and one within yourself. You have to be a person of integrity and character. And then you got to consider how your actions and plan affect the people around you. So that's what um, those are the three parts of morality. So that's chapter one. So we'll just keep pressing on here. There's things I want to spend some more time on. So chapter two in book three is the cardinal virtues. So there are seven classical Christian virtues. These are faith, hope, charity, fortitude, justice, prudence, and temperance. So Aristotle first uh, defined the bottom four, and then the top three, um, Aquinas added to the bottom four to make the seven classical Christian virtues. So the bottom, um, the top three are called the theological virtues. So the idea here is that a moral, <clears throat> a uh, moral, responsible, decent person, somebody living uh, the classical good life, so to speak, which which would be a life pursuing goodness, pursuing virtue, pursuing. Uh, honor and integrity for its own sake, that person would not necessarily, even though they were living a a virtuous life, would not know of the top three virtues because they are um, dependent on revelation, right? So faith, hope, and charity, um, in the sense that we mean in classical Christian virtues, they're dependent on revelation uh, through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And so let's just talk about those briefly. First is faith. So that's going to be belief and trust in God. We've talked about that a lot. We had a whole week on what is faith. Uh, next is hope. So that's going to be to trust in God's promises. I think sometimes we think of hope as kind of like, you know, Hail Mary pass or half court shot, like I hope this goes in. But um, in a Christian sense, hope, there's a lot of confidence in hope. You, you're you expecting uh, good things to happen in the future. You're expecting regardless of how the day went or how much suffering you're currently experiencing or people you love are experiencing, one day um, the God of creation is going to fulfill His promises. And so you have a virtue of hope that, that provides an, an opportunity to be joyful and positive and forward-looking even when you know your Thursday may not be going so good. <clears throat> and then the third is charity. So this is concern for an active helping of others. And uh, this is a, you know, charity, we kind of have a, a, a cultural definition of like giving alms to the poor, you know, so to speak. Uh, but charity in the Christian sense is, of course, a lot more than just giving money. It's uh, genuinely caring for and helping other people. So those are the three Christian virtues. These are the four cardinal virtues. So there's a thought. You think, oh, these are, these are classical virtues, so I bet cardinal is some, somehow an allusion to like um, Catholic hierarchy, like a cardinal in the church. That's actually not true. Apparently the hinge on a doorframe is derived from the same Latin word as cardinal. And so that's kind of why the Catholic Church adopted that term for their um, church governing structure. But So the idea here is these are the virtues on which the good life turns. <clears throat> I think this is kind of hard for us to understand because when we think of the good life in Western secular culture, we think of having a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of influence, uh, being comfortable, being healthy and wealthy. But... Um, to the ancients, to the classical way of thinking, the good life was a life that was lived um, with integrity, that was true to yourself, and a life um, that was virtuous. So a life that considered what was right and did the right thing, the virtuous thing, in spite of temptation or desire to do otherwise. And so that was the good life. So when Aristotle or, or Plato talks about uh, the good life, um, they mean something beyond just health and wealth. They're talking about being a person of character. So the four cardinal virtues are, number one is fortitude. So that just means brave endurance. So I really like that definition. It's the idea to, to endure, to keep running, um, I guess running your 5K, <laughs> keep running your race even when you want to quit, but also be brave about it, even when it gets tough, even when there is, um, it would be easier, or maybe even a lot of people would give you advice, it's time to quit pursuing whatever it is you're pursuing. A person that has fortitude would continue on in that. Next is justice. So this is being fair and equitable with others. I think that's self-explanatory. But a, a virtuous person cares about living in a fair world. Not necessarily that everyone is equal, but that everyone has equal opportunities and is treated fairly. Next is prudence. This is, this is the idea, <clears throat> the ability to govern and discipline yourself. 
So if you, th you do things that are prudent, um, when uh, it's kind of before, I guess, our time, but when George H.W. Bush was running for president, he said in a, uh, a debate, he said, it w he said it wouldn't be prudent, and then he like got made fun of mercilessly on um, like Saturday Night Live, because it's like, who uses the word prudent? But anyway, so that's what prudence is. It's the ability to govern and discipline oneself. It's the ability to figure out what's the right thing to do and then to do it. And then temperance, we associate temperance with the, the temperance movement, which is like in the 1920s, 1930s, the idea, um, there's an amendment to the Constitution actually that made drinking or selling alcohol illegal. And then we, that was obviously later repealed. But temperance really doesn't mean to abstain from alcohol. Temperance is the idea that you moderate yourself. So uh, a temperate person might enjoy a cookie. A temperate person would not eat 10 cookies, right? A temperate person um, would enjoy uh, watching football. A temperate person wouldn't watch football for three straight days, right? Would enjoy video games, but wouldn't, wouldn't overdo it. And so a temperate person, um, <laughs> a temperate person is somebody who can kind of can enjoy the aspects of, of the flesh, the things about being human without kind of giving into it. The last like three weeks, Anna, she just said the other day, she's like, I feel like this has been like your video game weekends or something. Like that. Yeah, the last I have not been temperate enough. So. Kyle and Charlie playing Mario. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I've been very temperate. I, I would have liked to play more. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you wanted more, but you held back because you thought it'd be temperate. I also think of this song, I think it was like, I don't know if it's Mozart, like the well tempered clavier or something. <clears throat> you want to hear that? Crazy. Okay. So, but temper comes in the right thing, like controlling your temper, being being moderate. Temperature. Yep. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, got, I got nothing, man. Okay. I like when you talk about words. So this is. I thought this is a pretty cool quote. There's a difference between doing some particular just or temperate action. So you think about maybe. Maybe tonight, Lauren's got this amazing dessert over there. Maybe I'm not going to like go nuts on it. Like maybe I'm going to eat like one small piece, right? Or maybe I'm going to go all in, you know, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But there's a difference in making a temperate decision and in being a temperate person. Someone who is not a good tennis player may now and then make a good shot. What you mean by a good player is a man whose eye and muscle and nerves have been so trained by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied on. They have a certain tone or quality which is there even when he's not playing. So in the same way, a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets in the end a certain quality of character. Now it is that quality rather than the particular actions which we mean when we talk of virtue. So a virtuous person doesn't simply make virtuous decisions. It's kind of is, is who they are, right? So you wouldn't be, be virtuous because you, um, you know, made a decision that was more just than other. You would just naturally be a person of justice. Again, I don't know how to say that <coughs> any better than Lewis just said it, so I don't want to add too many comments. Any thoughts on being a virtuous person, what that means? So I think being like a virtuous person is something that's really important to me and I, I, uh, something we talk about in our family. So I think that, that chapter is really insightful. Like how is it, has it been thought of the great minds of Christian history? How have they thought about what it means to be a good person? I think it's interesting because for the first time kind of in our cultural moment, we answer that question differently than it's been answered for the past 2,000 years. What is the good life? And so I think it's helpful to read old books and to think, Man, our generation defers on this important question to what the great minds of all, both Christian and non-Christian, um, have have how they've answered this question. Maybe we're right, and you know we ought to answer it the way we're answering. It, but I think they ought to give us pause if we have a if we're answering an important life question in our culture differently than it's ever been answered. What I think about what that means. <clears throat> okay, so chapters three, four, five, and six are all titled up here. So there's social morality. Morality and psychoanalysis, sexual morality, and Christian marriage. So I just want to jump in and say these chapters are excellent, right? And there's no way I can cover, you know, the depth of, of those topics. So I do want to make a few comments, but these will be the four chapters we cover in the mo with the most brevity because I want to 
kind of jump into some other stuff later. So let's talk about, um, I want to make a few points here. So um, these chapters discuss how Christian behavior relates to politics. So what is social morality? Well, politics encompasses a lot of social morality, how we are going to exist in a community and establish um, rules of governance that can allow for the common good. That's what, in its best form, politics should be. Um, so it relates to politics, modern psychology, human sexuality, and the institution of marriage. Okay? So let's just make a few points here that Lewis tries to make. So Lewis cautions against both the mingling and ignorance, those are two blanks, mingling and ignorance of the relationship between religion and politics. Okay, so there's, there's two things here. One thing that was going on at the time, there's a political party in Great Britain, I think it's actually called like the Christian Democratic Party. Like that's like one of the political parties there. And so there, um, because there's no separation of church and state in England, there's always kind of a, a more open conversation of like what role does Christianity or religion directly play in like the official structures of government. So we kind of have a different conversation in America, but I think it is helpful to think about what is a healthy way that faith and religion should affect or should not affect politics. And so Lewis was really careful to warn against the idea that we needed to create a theocracy, right? We don't need to, the goal of public social Christian life is not to create a Christian government, so to speak. So um, he wouldn't <coughs> want to um, define Christian morality, determine what's right, and then pass laws that everyone else had to agree and follow Christian morality. And so you can see how if you start um, mingling in unhealthy, inappropriate ways, it really leads, it really hurts both politics and religion, right? Because so, now religion is dependent on the force and power of politics. And politics is corrupted by the influence and um, perspective of religion, right? And so it, it makes both weaker in, in a way. So really what I think we want to do is we want to be careful to not say um, that something, because we have a religious or um perspective on something, that that necessarily needs to be the governing perspective for an entire nation, right? On the flip side, there's in religion that I think is also destructive, and it's the idea that we should ignore any of our convictions of faith and our conviction, our religious convictions, when it comes to thinking about the common good and in the public square. <clears throat> so the idea that you would determine I'm hesitant to give like specific examples, but the idea that you would determine that some some behavior or some action is harmful um, to the common good, and and be influenced by that determination by your faith, and then not include that in your um, public advocacy, the way you vote, and the way you, that you think about the common good, I think is is not very mature, right? So. There, there definitely is a balance here when we want to say, and just trying to kind of co-opt and create a uh, Christian government is not the call for Christian public in the public square. But at the same time, ignoring um, what creates human flourishing uh, is also not kind of not the Christian. So you should read the chapter because he said a lot better than I just said it. But he is careful to balance um, these two things. Okay, so let's talk about morality and psychoanalysis. I actually want to talk about this a little bit. This is actually interesting because uh, Lewis and Sigmund Freud were kind of friends. Um, they were at least acquaintances. They knew each other. They debated a couple times, had public debates, and Lewis and Freud would get up there. And Obviously, Sigmund Freud is the um, founder of psychoanalysis, so I'm sure he was thinking about his buddy when he wrote this chapter, right? Um, and... Uh, Freud was also an atheist, and so kind of Freud's conviction was as we understand human psychology, there's no longer need for religious explanations of the person, of the self, of behavior, because since we can explain some behaviors based on human psychology, and we at that time, at that, <clears throat> at that time they thought, and in some ways they've turned out to be right, in some ways they've turned out to be wrong, um, but that 
personality can be can be determined by brain function and brain chemistry. So if you c can connect all those, then where's the room for the soul, right? So that's kind of in analysis. And so of course, Lewis, as a Christian thinker, thinks the soul does exist and is an important part of human living. Also, as a learned man and um, somebody who was involved in kind of the, the upper echelons of academia, understood that there is something about human psychology and uh, mental health illness and kind of all that integrate. But there's a couple of points that I think we need to make about this topic. One is in the nuances argument and nuances of right. So it's part of a Christian claim that there's no or mental health disease. Well, of course not. Of course not. But sometimes in an argument, you can um, catch yourself kind of being backed up into a corner. Maybe the atheist psychiatrist or um, you know mental health professional says, look, I can explain depression because of low serotonin levels. So therefore, there's no such thing as the soul that is uh, you know facing... Um, spiritual anguish and there's no need for um, a spiritual or religious discussion of having a healthy soul. It's all brain chemistry and I can fix it with a pill so we don't need to have this conversation. Lewis was careful to not be forced to make an argument that wasn't what he actually believed, right? So Lewis would say, of course, there's something to be said about brain function, brain chemistry, and human personality, but there's something beyond that. So this again, Pianist, piano. I think that's our blanks there. So Lewis analogizes a pianist and a piano to our relationship with our soul and psychology. <clears throat> so if you imagine you're trying to play a song and you don't know how to play the piano, right? So you're a poor pianist. It doesn't matter how well tuned the piano is, right? No, there's not going to be good music. And so that would be the idea is if, if you did not have a healthy soul, if you weren't intentional about choosing your behavior and making individual choices about how to behave morally, that would be as if you were not playing the keys well. You're not going to get a good tune. At the, same, at the same level, though, you could be a moral and upright person but have a um, poor psychology, a poor... Um, you know, brain chemistry, things about your body that inhibit you from playing a beautiful moral tune in your life. So this would be like a pianist who's playing to, trying to play a poor piano, right? So you can be a, a moral person, you can be a good pianist, but it's just not going to make beautiful music if you're um, prevented from doing that because of um, things in your personality, things in your brain function, things in your psychiatry that prevent that from happening. And so Lewis has this beautiful um, kind of I guess a couple of paragraphs at the end of the chapter, he says, there's coming a day where all that's going to be wiped away, right? And so the mental scars and the burdens and the demons that we face within this world are all going to be wiped away, and we're all going to see each other for as we really are. And you'll see a lot of people who've lived what appears to be a, an upright moral life, and we'll discover, man, part of that was just they, they had a good constitution, so to speak. They were given, you know, kind of a, an easy piano to play. And then some people will think, man, they're such an angry person, or they're always complaining, or they're just, they're always kind of making selfish decisions, never kind of going above and beyond. Then we'll see, man, they were, you know, they were trying to play a really poor piano, and really, they were really uh, courageous in their moral choices. And so there's kind of an encouragement to not be so judgmental in the way that we look at other people's moral lives because you don't know exactly um, the instrument that they're trying to play with. And there's also a charge to play the instrument God gave you the best that it can be played. So don't be content to just say, I'm being kinder, I'm being more just, I'm being more friendly than so-and-so because you may be playing a much easier instrument to play um, than, than your buddy or your friend or your classmate. So you play your instrument, you can play it. Okay, sexual morality, um, <clears throat> I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. Um, Lewis defends biblical sexuality, I think, in a really beautiful way, and um, talks about sex sexuality being a gift from God. Also talks about how our sexual appetites are distorted in ways that are really... Um, really ugly and create human suffering. He's got this famous analogy of like the, it's a, this plate of food. And so he talks about how like 
of course we all want food, we all desire to eat, but what if you went into a culture that had like a plate of food sitting in the middle of a room and it was covered with a sheet and that someone in the room like slowly removed the sheet from the plate of food and there was like everyone gathered around the food and was like cheering like, yeah, the food. And so the idea is like you're slowly uncovering the food so that everyone can see the, the product of their appetite, what it is that's enticing their appetite. It seems like the same point, the idea that at least in the Western world, that we view sexuality and pursue it, it, it I think it shows that our appetites have been distorted. And um, he calls us back to something more beautiful. Which leads into a conversation about Christian marriage. We're going to do, so in the spring, we're going to do four weeks kind of surrounding sexual morality and what that means and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So <clears throat> I'm kind of punning because I don't want to jump into all of that, but I'm also punning because we're going to have more time and a topic like that I think deserves uh, more time. So, and then on marriage, he's got this beautiful sentence on marriage here. I, I wish everyone that was going to get married would read his uh, chapter here because I think it's. I think it's really true, and at least Lauren, I mean, I think it's been true for us. And so he says, being in love, first move them, a married couple, to promise of fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run, but in love was the explosion that started it. So he's contrasting here this idea of being in love and loving. And so the point is that being in love is a passion, it's an emotion, it's a beautiful thing that's felt with great intensity in the, at the beginning of a relationship. And then is felt, hopefully, you know, a lot of times as a relationship progresses. But of course, in any kind of long-term relationship, there's going to be moments where you're not like feeling like, you know, the, the uh, damsel in distress and Prince Charming, right? There's going to be moments where like, the kid's crying, somebody threw up, you're in a bad mood, you didn't do well on a test, whatever. And so his point is in those times, it's not, because you don't feel in love doesn't mean that you get a pass from loving. So you have to choose to love even when uh, you don't feel in love. And the, the people in the marriages that choose love even when they don't feel love are, are the same marriages that there will be more love felt within right? So choosing love creates more emotional opportunities for the feelings of passion and love. I think that's true, right? In our culture, we say, you know, passions, right? So if you feel loved, if you feel empowered, if you feel good, then that's where you should be. If you don't, then you should go somewhere else, right? And so we have, you know, rampant divorce, rampant infidelity. I think that's all because of a misunderstanding of this idea of what love is and what it means uh, to be in love. So, uh, you should... That's good. We think that's true. We had, we've had a good conversation about that. I'm a lucky guy. All right. Forgiveness. Okay, so what does it mean to forgive? So let's just... Uh, this is... This is kind of starting the point in the lesson where I'm going to let Lewis do most of the talking, and then we may pause periodically and um, just kind of have some conversation about it. So Lewis says, I'm not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. The question is, um, <clears throat> Lewis is responding to a question about forgiveness. So of course he did the whole thing like Christians are called to forgive, God forgives us, he calls us to forgive each other. Then he's, then he's asking the, the hypothetical question, if you had been in a uh, concentration camp in World War II and had been tortured or treated poorly by the Nazis, could you forgive the people who tortured you? So here's his answer. I'm not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. That's the blank, invent. And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we're offered forgiveness on any other terms. <clears throat> I want to make two points about this quote, and then I want to talk about it. The first point is how important Jesus thought forgiving is, and Lewis kind of follows up. Our forgiveness is at least related, maybe even dependent on, our choice to forgive other people when we've been wrong, right? So sometimes I think holding a grudge is almost kind of like respected as like a, a tough, you know, manly virtue. Like, I'm not going to, I won't I won't forget, you know. Um, 
But that's not a Christian way of thinking about forgiveness. For you, forgiving people who have done you wrong is a serious deal in the Bible. The second thing I would say, I love Lewis's attitude here about Scripture. So he says, basically he says, I don't think I could forgive somebody that tortured me. That's basically what he says in the first sentence. But he said, I'm not telling you what I can do or what I think. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And I think that kind of encapsulates the way that we ought to preach and teach and think about Christianity, right? So as, Christ, as Christians and Christian thinkers, we're, kind, we are, um, we're not scientists inventing new technologies or new ideas. We're like explorers navigating and discovering um, something that's already been created, right? So we're not inventing theology. God's already told us what is true. God's already revealed himself in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ and given us the Holy Spirit. So I think I just think there's a humility here saying, he's basically saying, I wouldn't want to do that, but it doesn't really matter what I want. I, I didn't invent Christianity. It already exists. Okay, let's stop and we have some conversation about that. All right, so the chapter 8 is called The Great Sin. <clears throat> we, will, we won't take a poll, but just think in your mind, if you, if you had to say, like, what is the great sin, what do you think it would be? And I, I certainly wouldn't have answered this, but I, I think he's right. So here's the quote. Well, now we have come to the center. Don't you love those British spellings? Like, we've come to the century. We've come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. That's your blank. Pride unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through, your blank, pride, that the devil became the devil. Your next blank, pride, leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So why is Lewis so worked up about pride? He says it's, it's destructive to Christian living for two reasons. It prevents the humility that's your blank humility required for Christian repentance and spirit-filled living. So I think all I think all of Christianity kind of comes down um, to two kind of basic emotions. One is humility. You have to recognize that that you're not the center of the universe. That you're responsible to a moral law that's above you. That you haven't lived up to that law, and you have to humble yourself to say, "I'm broken, and I, I need I need help." Right, so without humility, I think I don't think the Christian life is possible. And the others we're not talking about t- tonight, but gratitude I think is the other. So once you have embra- have humbled yourself to accept God's gift, then then living a life of gratitude and the kind of behavior consistent with gratitude. I th- so I think if you, if you have humility and gratitude, you you've almost kind of made it in terms of Christian living. But so so if you have, if you have pride, you can't have humility. If you don't have humility, I don't think it's possible to be a Christian. Then the second thing he says is, is that pride leads to all the other sins. All the other sins. So he gives the example of like a... Um, he talks about money here. He talks about um, maybe a rich man who's got all that he wants, but pride wants him to be not just wealthy, but wealthier than the next guy. Or, an, you know, I think he, he, he may use an analogy of like an attractive person who... Um, is not a, it's not enough though just to be content with a, the looks that God has had given this individual, but they're envious of somebody who they think looks better than them. So that leads to the sin of envy. So Lewis thinks that pride prevents us from living the Christian life in the first place, and then an overflow of pride leads to all kinds of other sin. And I think he's probably right about that. And I think we live in a culture that celebrates pride, right? So, you know, in a lot of ways, we're totally upside down, which is why it's so important to, to think about um, what it means to live a good life. Because if you just follow, follow the cues, if you kind of go with the flow, um, you know, it's not like the first time in history that there's been like a, a culture that's kind of not exactly a biblical culture. Most Christians have not lived in a, a Christian culture. But if the flow is like going over the waterfall and you just go with the flow, like you're going to go over the waterfall. So I think it's important to think about like, you know, how are we swimming? What are we doing here? Okay, so that is the great sin, pride. Let's just keep moving here. Charity. <clears throat> so this is a great quote. This is a couple of, a couple of my all-time favorites here. But love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will 
which we have naturally above which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. <clears throat> and he follows up by saying, he says, Ask yourself, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? When you found the answer, go and do it. He says, that's what love is. So figure out, if you love somebody, how would you act? Then go and act that way. <laughs> and uh, so this is kind of, if you think about Lewis's view of marriage, um, his view of, of love and charity makes a lot of sense, right? He says, love does not necessarily mean an emotion. It's, it's a state not of the feelings, but of the will. So I certainly don't disagree with Lewis. Um, you know, I think obviously emotions are an important part of life. And so part of, of loving other people means feeling a certain way about them. But above and beyond that, it, it means choosing to treat people the way that you would treat them if you felt an emotional connection to them, which you may not always feel. So just because you don't feel loving towards someone does not excuse you from the Christian virtue of charity. You have to choose to love. Okay. Let's press on here to chapter 10, Hope. So again, a long Lewis quote. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. So have you guys ever heard that? I've heard that. um, I've heard Christian teachers almost talk this way. Like, if you're always thinking about heaven, then, um, you know, God can't use you now. Like, almost like, don't think about the hereafter so much. You need to be focused on today, what God wants today. Of course, I think that comes from a good place, but Lewis would disagree with that kind of thinking. In, in fact, the idea of Christian hope, I think we ought to be thinking about heaven all the time. Um, and so it shouldn't be a part of Christian teaching to discourage you from thinking about the future. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present, present world were, were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. So we have this idea that that hope is kind of like, your head's up in the clouds and you're just kind of drifting off and oh one day I'll have a cloud of myself and a harp and I'll be floating along and uh, and so you hope kind of makes you removed from this world but I think Christian hope robust Christian hope God is going to make things right there's coming a day where he's going to use his people his church and his son is going to return to set the world to rights and that is going to happen gives us a confidence to live with more passion and more intention today because what we do today matters because we're playing a role in a drama that's unfolding throughout the ages that began at creation and God is using His church to fulfill today. So people who are most concerned about the future and God's fulfillment of His promises in the future are going to live in the present with the most action and the most ambition to be a part of that plan. So I, I really... Uh, appreciate Lewis kind of giving it to the people who think like who criticize us for thinking about heaven I actually think thinking about heaven thinking about the future compels us to live today in ways that matter alright well let's stop and uh, just maybe have a little conversation about those last couple chapters okay so the last two chapters of book three are both on faith so there's faith chapter one and faith chapter two so Here's a quote for Faith Chapter 1. Now, faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. This is probably a top 10 Lewis quote. Like if you Googled C.S. Lewis quotes, this would be on on the top 10 list. So um, he is dealing here with this idea of sometimes you don't feel um, like you have faith, right? You've had a bad day things stinks, things don't seem like they're working out, you're in a bad mood, you just got in a fight. Maybe you're at a certain particular spot in your life where doubts creep in for whatever reason. And so Lewis's point here is faith is not something that you believe um, 
so he's responding here to a couple of different criticisms. One is that faith is something that you always feel 100%. Like you're always like robust, I'm feeling faithful. He's saying that's not necessarily faithful. He's also here confronting a criticism. Um, there's a quote sometimes. Uh, I think Mark Twain said that um, faith is holding on. Faith is believing in something you know is not so. So <laughs> Mark Twain said that. And... Um, so he, Lewis is also criticizing that view, right? So this idea that, that faith is like, you know it's not true, but you're still going to have, you're still going to believe it. That's called faith. Well, he says that that's not true. So um, he said, you're, it's the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted. So you ought to think through what it is you believe, and you ought to understand why you believe it. And that's an, I think that's an important part of any faith journey. But then, just because you ate a bad bowl of chili that night and you got indigestion, and you don't feel faithful, you, you don't drop it, right? So being faith, there's some pers- persistence. There's some um, fortitude, so to speak, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, to being faithful, right? So faith is a decision that you make, that you're going to hold on to the, hold on to these things that your reason has guided you to think is true, despite um, things that may change about your mood. And in the second chapter on faith, he says this. Um, so... The first chapter on faith really deals with the idea of belief, right? And that's part of faith, is believing in something. Is it true or is it false? And so the famous quote was the one we just went over. Your reason ought to, be, reason ought to play a role in your faith. And then you also, there's a, a certain virtue to faith, holding on to it despite your changing moods. I think that's helpful. The second chapter of faith is how faith guides and empowers you to act. So this is not a famous quote from Lewis. I don't, I've not seen anyone else quote this anywhere, and I don't understand why. This, to me, this may be like one of the most beautiful things he's ever written. Um, so I'm just going to read it, and then <clears throat> I don't know that I can add much to it. But here's what he said. He said, Christianity seems at first to be all about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue. Right, so that's what this chapter is about, right? It's about Christian behavior. How do we act? So I think at first, the Christian life seems a lot about that. You believe certain things, so you behave a certain way, and these are the ways you ought to behave. That's Christian living. Yet it leads you on, out of all that, into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk of those things, except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness, as a mirror is filled with light. But they do not call it goodness. They do not call it anything. They're not even thinking of it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. But this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that. Doesn't that just make you jealous? Like, I wish I could write like that. Like, that's just incredible. I mean, it's so incredible. I love the idea that there is a part of Christian living that is about morality and duty and rules and guilt and virtue. That's part of it. But there's something beyond that, right, where you, where you live that way and you're not even really thinking about it. You're not thinking. A truly virtuous person doesn't think very much about being virtuous, right? And... um I think that's what he's talking about here. You reach a point where a, a, the far country, it's almost like an allusion to Narnia there, like in the, in the far country. Um, but he talks about those people live with what we would call goodness, but they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not even thinking of it. They're too busy looking at the source from which it comes. So I want to live that way. I, I think Lewis, I'm not sure he's even saying that this is the country you know, our world where we live that way. But I think Christianity is calling us to something. Faith is calling us beyond just belief and just following of certain rules, but to being a certain type of person. And so um, I think, you know, as Christians go, I'm, I'm, I, would, I guess I'm a pretty conservative one in like how I'll read Scripture and what I think it says. Um, and so I think kind of following rules, I think that's part of it. But it's, it's, it's possible to be a sort of, the type of Christian that kind of gets stuck there and misses the whole point of the rules and the theology, which is not to believe and follow the rules and theology for the, for the sake of themselves, but it's to transform us into a certain type of person who would belong in a different type of country, which is what Christian hope is all about, a different country that we're um, destined for. So, <clears throat> I guess my favorite fiction series is Narnia, of course. And I'm actually reading it with Allie right now. We took a pause for reading a different book. 
uh, for Christmas. But anyway, so this is the lamppost. Have, has, has anyone read Narnia? You guys read it? Okay. So the lamppost is like the demarcation between our world and Narnia, right? And so I think when you talk about faith, especially this kind of faith, um, it's kind of like this is the lamppost. This is the boundary between this world and the next where Christian behavior shines the brightest. The Christian life is not something that shines for its own sake or by its own power, but is merely a flicker of the truth that faithfully, hopefully, and charitably shines the way home where the Father of all lights will shine forever. So Christian behavior is calling us to something beyond just being a moral person. It's calling us to be a different kind of person. So you think about the light that it's calling to. Maybe my favorite couple of chapters in the Bible is like Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, right there at the end. So <clears throat> then there's this famous uh, verse here. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. Then I want to finish with the last, the last paragraph in the last chapter in the last book of Narnia. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, and for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all the adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Christian behavior is about. Okay, so I want to thank David for doing a great job, and to you for listening. If you're out there and you've made it through all this, uh, thanks for sticking with us. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. We had a lot of discussion kind of intermittently tonight that was uh, very good. And man, you look at it in this, uh, this book on Christian behavior, it's split up into 12 different chapters. And basically it's Lewis kind of tackling, well, you know, most of the major things about uh, what Christians do, let's say. And, uh, you know, you could split up each one of these chapters and have a lesson on, on you know, each one. So you'd have 12 different lessons and we're trying to do it in one night. So there's so much that could be said. I mean, you have a section on uh, hope, you know, and you have a section on uh, faith and then another one on faith. And I mean, those could all be separate lessons. And so it is sort of a, uh, you know, a 20,000 foot view of Christian behavior, let's say, and that's okay. So hopefully this was a good primer for you if, if these are not topics that are familiar to you, and then maybe just a kind of a good refresher if you've been a Christian your whole life. We will wrap up Mere Christianity next week. Eric Gentry will speak to us on the topic of beyond personality, which is a look at the three parts uh, of God, as it were, so the Trinity, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these are really lofty ideas, and it's a really, um, yeah, let's say, elevated topic. And I think, you know, as Lewis is apt to do, he does a great job explaining that in ways that we can understand. So I hope that you're able to rejoin us for that, whether by podcast or in person. And I hope you're having a great holiday season. And so we will see you next week on the MDEDDS podcast.